Our sermon text for today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, beginning in verse 14. Luke, chapter 16, and I'll begin reading in verse 14. It'll be uh, on the screen. It's in your bulletin, but of course, if you brought your own copy of God's Word, that's, in my opinion, the best way to read it. Luke chapter 16, and I'll begin reading in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him, talking about Jesus. And Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. This is God's Word. And we're, we're studying the book of Luke this spring. We're in chapter 16. And sandwiched between two far more famous passages, the, the parables that bookend chapter 16, is this little section of five verses, which is our text for this afternoon. It is often skipped over when people uh, teach on this chapter. In fact, when I've taught through Luke before, I've skipped over it. People just don't know quite what to do with it. And some have argued that, you know, Luke just kind of gathered up some verses he didn't know what else to do with and just kind of dumped them here in the middle of chapter 16 because it doesn't seem to really flow or at first glance fit with what comes before and after. But there is a theme running through this passage. And that theme is the good news of Jesus Christ. So it's a very basic sermon we're going to have this morning. We're going to look at the good news of Jesus Christ. That's from verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. And we're going to look at this passage through the filter of three points. First of all, we're going to see that Christianity is about good news, not good advice. Second, we're going to look at what exactly the good news of Christianity is. And then third, we'll look at how can you know it when you do believe the good news. Christianity is good news, not good advice. We're going to look at the good news itself, and then how can you know when you believe the good news. So first, Christianity is good news, not good advice. What is, what is something when we call it news? Okay. It's not hard. It's a report about something that's already happened, right? It's in the past. It's done. But when that event is big enough, when that news is big enough, it means that nothing will be the same for it having happened. Now, it used to be you could ask anybody, where were you on September 11th, 2001? But now... Now it's been more than 22 years since then, and so there's a lot of folks in this town who weren't even born on September 11, 2001. But I remember where I was, and I'm sure a lot of you do too. I was uh, in grad school at Ole Miss. That morning, I left my apartment to go on a run. I had my headphones in. I was listening to the radio on my Walkman. And you can translate all that for your kids after the service. And I heard on the radio that 
two planes had crashed into the World Trade Center. And, it, and as I kept running, it become, became more and more evident that this was something sinister and ominous. So I went back to my apartment and uh, where my wife and I lived on campus at the time. And I saw what everybody else saw. I saw the South Tower fall first. I saw the North Tower fall second. And because of the news, right, the world changed. You can't go to an airport now if you flew before 9-11 and not be reminded of what happened that day. So a lot of people remember where they were on September 11, 2001. Far fewer people remember where they were on November 23, 2007. But I vividly remember it. Now, I went, to, I went to grad school at Ole Miss, but I did my undergraduate work at Mississippi State. And while I want Ole Miss to win every other game of the year, I, I can't help it. I want Mississippi State to win the Egg Bowl. And I know I just lost like 90% of the room by saying that. <laughs> but stick with me, okay? I, I used to get really worked up about the rivalry, but you know, moving here and having so many dear friends and church members who are Ole Miss fans has certainly moderated my zeal, and I just try not to care about it anymore, to tell you the truth. But that November in 2007, I did care. I still cared about it back then, and I was that week where I almost always am, Thanksgiving week, I was at my older sister's house in Monroe, Louisiana, because she claimed that holiday for our family many moons ago. So we, we all gathered at her house. But the Egg Bowl was not televised in Louisiana that year. This is before there were streaming services. Um, you couldn't pick it up on the radio that far into Louisiana. So we were watching the Arkansas LSU game and just waiting for Tim Brando to come in from the studios and you know, give us updates. And that year, the Egg Bowl did not start out looking good. Well, for Ole Miss fans, it started out looking great. But if you were a state fan, it did not start out looking good at all. Ole Miss was up 14-0 with 10 minutes to go in the game. And then that prince of a coach, Ed Ogeron, decided to go for it on fourth down, his own side of the 50, got stopped, state scored a touchdown. A few minutes later, another game break, Mississippi State's run a punt back for a touchdown. It's tied 14-14. And in the last game break, with 18 seconds to go, State kicks a field goal to win the Egg Bowl. Now, what happened to my Thanksgiving as a result of that news? It was a whole lot better than it would have otherwise been, okay? Because in my family, I've got two sisters who were tried out at Ole Miss. I've got a niece who was a tried out at Ole Miss. I've got a brother-in-law and a nephew who went to Ole Miss. And I could wear a smile the rest of the week for having heard that news. Now, did I have to do anything? This is my point. Did I have to do anything in order for my week to be transformed? No. I just had to hear this report, believe it, and then I had a much better holiday than I would have otherwise had. Now, of course, when the when the good news is about sports, the effect is short-lived because next year I had to go and watch the Egg Bowl in 2008 and State got absolutely demolished in Houston Nuts' first Ole Miss campaign, 45 to nothing. And I had to sit there and watch it in front of all the people I had smirked in front of the year before. But the good, so if you hear good news about sports, if you hear good news about any, almost anything else, the effect is short-lived. But when the good news is about Christianity, it never wears out. In fact, as the years go on, it only gets better. The effect only grows stronger. 
Christianity is not about good advice. Do you see my point? Nothing wrong with good advice, man. Good advice about how to spend your money or how to study or how to uh, exercise or organize your life. It is great. But good advice depends on you doing something. You can't just hear good advice and expect anything to be changed. Good news changes you just for it having happened and you don't have to lift a finger. And that's what Christianity is. It's good news. Do you see where I'm going with this? Now, second, what is the good news of Christianity? Let's read verse 14. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Now, I need to tell you who the Pharisees were for this to make sense. They were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. So, uh, don't just think pastors, because they had a lot more pull, a lot more authority than pastors did. Think of Pharisees as doctors, lawyers, professors, and pastors all rolled into one, because that was their office, really. It took a lot of work to become a Pharisee. And once you became one, you were instantly a person of great respect in the nation. They were on the top of the world, and they loved it. They loved their position. In Matthew 23, beginning in verse 6, Jesus says about them, They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi or teacher. The Pharisees were very proud of themselves. And so when this itinerant evangelist named Jesus starts coming around talking about the kingdom of God, they mock him. They sneer at him. Literally, what the Greek means is they just stuck their noses up when Jesus came around. But Jesus looks at the learning. He looks at the status. He looks at the pride of the Pharisees, and he says it's all worthless. In fact, he says in verse 15, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is an abomination or is detestable. It is detestable in God's sight. So all the things that the Pharisees thought made them special, made them better than everyone else in the world, Jesus looked at it and said, it is an abomination. That makes you detestable in God's sight. So here's my question for you this Sunday afternoon, this cold Sunday afternoon. Is there something about you that makes you think you're better than other people? Is it your money? Is it your good looks? Is it the family that you come from? You know, you come from, you know, family with some influence. Or is it the neighborhood you grew up in? Or is it the school you went to? Or is it the career that you have? And these are the things that you look at and you, you kind of stick your nose up a little bit. This is what makes you feel good about yourself. Or conversely, what do you constantly beat yourself up about? What is it about you that makes you feel ashamed? Is it your body? Is it the car you drive because your family doesn't have a lot of money and that's the best you can get? 
Is it because you are single and you want to be married or you don't have a good relationship with your children? Jesus warns you that if you build your life on any of those things, if you, if you look to those things to give you self-worth and a sense of happiness, you're committing idolatry. And, and he says it's detestable. It's an abomination. For at least two reasons, okay? First of all, this idolatry is detestable because it won't bring you any lasting sense of happiness. So, say for example, you like the way you look because you've just lost all this weight and after working and working and working, you can now fit into a size whatever dress. Okay? Nothing wrong with that. But now the time the work comes, you've got to keep it off. And now every time you look in the mirror, every time you look at a meal, every time you think about eating, always in the back of your mind is, I've got to keep it off. I've got to stay in that dress size. Or, or what if you're big into politics and your candidate, final, your party, won the election? And you've worked and worked and worked and you've been online and you've been campaigning and your, your party won. That's no, there's nothing wrong with that. But you know what? The effect is short-lived because there's always another election coming. And it's never going to stop. The effect is short-lived. It won't bring you any lasting sense of happiness. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things. But if you build your life on them, you're going to have to chase them down the rest of your days and it will not bring you a lasting sense of happiness. That's the first thing that makes idolatry detestable. The second thing, more importantly, is it's detestable because it dishonors God. God says, I am the one you should look to for your sense of self-worth and happiness. I am no idol, God says. I am your creator. You should give me the worship and the adoration that you're giving these created things. And plus, the God of the Bible is the only thing that if you get him, and he begins to give you this sense of self-worth. He's the only thing that won't turn you into a monster. You know, uh, I'm a lifelong Mississippian. I love our state. But unfortunately, Mississippi is known as the worst state in the union, right? It's at the bottom of all the lists that you don't want to be at the bottom of. Believe it or not, at one point, the official state motto of Arkansas was, thank God we're not Mississippi. That was the best they could come up with. But there is one area where Mississippians have always excelled. Writing. Authors. Because we've got William Faulkner, and we've got Richard Ford, and we've got Richard Wright, and we've got John Grisham, and we've got Eudora Welty. I mean, just go on down the line. Amazing heritage we have, literary heritage in our state. Well, a few years ago, one of these gifted, talented, Mississippi-born writers died. He was respected by his colleagues all over the nation. However, apparently, he sacrificed his family for his career. He gave all of his attention to his books and not his spouse and children. So when his first novel came out and it was nominated for all these national book awards and won several of them, 
his ex-wife, his then ex-wife, went on Amazon and wrote a review of it. And this is what she wrote. Well, it must be true that great writers are horrible human beings because this book ruined my life and my son's life. I hope it was worth it. Friends, we all chase idols by nature. We can't help it. It's not whether or not you're going to chase an idol. It's what idol will you chase. And to God, it's all an abomination. It is all detestable. And therefore, the Bible mandates one and only one ultimate penalty for idolatry. Death and eternal condemnation in hell. But here's the good news, okay? Even though we deserve punishment for our sins, God sent His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ never committed idolatry. He lived every moment of His life for the Father's glory. He earned nothing but accolades and honors and love from His Father. But rather than give Jesus what He deserved... In the greatest exchange in human history, God gave Jesus what we deserve. On the cross, God treated His own Son like an idolater. He poured His wrath out on Him, giving Him the death and the condemnation that we deserve to die. So that now, in Him, He is our substitute. All the condemnation we deserve, Jesus took. And all the honors from God, Jesus deserves we get in Jesus Christ, the good news is, we are reconciled to God. We are His beloved in Jesus Christ. We are His children. And nothing can ever change that. That's the good news of Christianity. It's already happened. All you have to do is believe it and nothing else. Your life can change today if you believe this report I'm telling you right now. You don't have to prove yourself to become a Christian. There's no probationary period when you become a Christian. You don't have to say, all right, I'm going to read my Bible every day for the next six months. And no, you don't have to do that. You don't even have to say, okay, for six weeks, I'm not going to lust after women or uh, lust after money. Or I'm, I'm going to not say any cuss words for the next six weeks. No, none of that. Just believe this good news. Accept it. And you're a, child of the, you're a child of the beloved. You're inside the kingdom of God. And if you're inside the kingdom of God, you don't have anything to worry about the rest of your days because even the hard things that happen to you, it's promised they will turn out for your good. Even the hardest things, God is working them out in His purposes for your good. Okay, that's good news, right? That's the good news of Christianity. Now, third and finally, how can you know you believe this good news? I'm not naive enough to think that just because in Oxford, Mississippi, somebody says they're a Christian, that they're really a Christian. It's still very popular to be thought of as a Christian in our community. So there are many, many people who, who think they are, you know, mean well, but they aren't. They think they are Christians because they grew up going to church, or they think they're Christians because their parents still go to church, or they think they're Christians because they know a lot of the Bible, because they went to a Christian school, but they aren't 
really believers. So how can you know that you're not one of those people? I mean, I think that's going to be one of the most tragic things about Judgment Day is the shock on some very religious people's faces who thought all those years they were following Jesus when they really never knew him. When Jesus says to them, I don't know you. I'm sorry. How can you know that you believe this good news? Let's read all of verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. That's talking about the last great prophet of Israel, John the Baptist. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. And I love the way how one very old version of the Bible, the Douay-Rheims Bible, translates verse 16. It says, the law and the prophets were until John. From that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone uses violence towards it. The way you can know that you really believe this good news I've just told you about Jesus Christ is that your life is marked by a holy violence. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean physical violence ever. A Christian can use physical violence if he's in the military or if he's trying to defend himself against imminent bodily harm. That's it. We're not talking about physical violence against other people. We're not talking about jihad or holy war. Holy violence means, can you look at yourself and say, I hate my sin? Do do you ever look at yourself and say things like, I hate how I look down on people who have less money than me? Or, I hate how I assume everybody that has more money than me is a snob and a brat. I hate the latent racism in my heart. I hate how I can't just enjoy my children, but instead have to constantly compare them to how children of other parents are doing so that I can feel good about myself as a parent. I hate how obsessed I can be over appearances, how things look, and I hate how easily I lose my temper. Can you say that about yourself? Is there something about you that you know is there, you can't get rid of it, and you hate it? Scholars have been confused about verse 18, where Jesus all of a sudden just throws out their divorce. It's like, where did that come from? Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. What does this have to do with the holy violence? Okay, I think it's this. I don't know this, but I can tell you that no two scholars agree. So basically, I can say whatever I want, right? In the Jewish culture of the time, a man could divorce his wife for anything. I mean, there was one rabbi that actually said, if your wife burns your supper, you can divorce her. Just crazy town. So many men, and probably at least a few Pharisees, just used women. Just went one right after the other to gratify their own lusts. And even though laws around divorce are, praise God, very different now, we might be able to apply verse 18 to something something like this. Have you ever been told that you don't seem to care about people, but that you just use people to get what you want? 
Have you, ever, have you ever been caught looking over the shoulder of someone you're talking to to see if somebody more attractive has walked into the room, more popular? You'd rather be seen with that person instead of the one you're actually talking to? If that's you, can you say, I hate that about me. I hate how I can't just appreciate the person that I'm with and not constantly have to one-up and trade up. Do you hate these things about yourself? And if you could, would you take some kind of supernatural scalpel and just go to work on your own heart? Just cut it out. That's the holy violence I think Jesus is talking about here. And you can know you believe the good news of Jesus Christ when you know you need what only He can give you. Now the truth is there is no spiritual scalpel that can cut out all this junk. You can't get rid of this stuff inside of you. But Jesus can. Oh, you give Jesus a lifetime and He can do wonders in your heart. And you give Jesus an eternity and He'll make you perfect. He will make you into a God. He will make you into something perfect. And if you want, more than anything else, right now to be fixed, to be made right, to be something different than you are right now, and you're willing to ask Jesus to do it, you can be sure that you believe this good news. Now, the Pharisees didn't believe, right? What'd they do? They sneered. And they scoffed. So, friends, if you're in this room this morning and you're sneering and scoffing at this news, if you think this is the dumbest thing you've ever heard, if you're thinking he went to Mississippi State, who can listen to that man? Well, that's understandable. But if you're scoffing at this news, i got to warn you, you are endangering your immortal soul. But if you can honestly say, yes, J.D., I see my brokenness. I see, I hate these things about myself. I want them to change. And I'm willing to go to Jesus to get them changed. Then you're in the kingdom of God. You belong to God through Jesus Christ, and He will never let you go. And He, and he will not stop until you are perfect. So friends, don't wait. I want everybody in this room to commit to following Jesus. It begins with a decision. I will this afternoon follow Him. Make that decision. And then after you make that decision, if you've never made it before, come and talk to me or one of the elders in the room. Let us pray with you. Get involved in a church. It doesn't have to be this church. We'd love it to be this church, but any of those churches we pray for on Sunday mornings, join one of those churches and start learning what it means to follow Jesus all your days. But whatever you do, make a decision to believe this good news. Hear the report. Accept it. And God will bless you. As C.S. Lewis famously wrote, aim at heaven and get earth thrown in, aim at earth and get neither. So believe this good news, get heaven and earth, and be transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together.